So we have three and a half hours packed in for you guys. To... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, actually, uh, uh, have you guys enjoyed the conference? Yeah. Uh, we have a relatively rich history with ARC. Um, yeah, they brought us in, gosh, uh, almost a, d- a decade ago when Dino Rizzo uh, had partnered up with us when they actually went. Um, how many of you guys went to the very first ARC ever out in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? Anyone here? West Coast people, it's not very common. But ARC used to be basically um, a family reunion of the original lead team kind of getting together. And then we got to partner with them when they actually kind of you know, grew up into an actual conference. And, uh, and then uh, part of transplanting it, they have the East Coast and then the West Coast. So we've been a partner with them for years and uh, rich history. And uh, they're just one of the favorite tribes that we have. I don't know if you guys noticed. I mean, it's seeing a lot of uh, friends here and stuff. But um, ARC has definitely been a great partnership because they really focus on the relationship. Uh, of things, and it, yeah, they don't look at things of you know what's in it for us. Um, uh, kind of a little bit about our history, and I'll introduce my brother Mel, and then um, and then I apologize in advance. I'm cutting out. Um, was it? I had some family stuff come up and commitments, so I actually have to head out uh, really shortly. But my name is Peter. Um, this is my brother Mel. Uh, I, I joke around. He used to beat me up when we were growing up. And, uh, and I'm not kidding, actually. <laughs> when I talk about my when I talk about my testimony, back the tears, right? Yeah, no. When I talk about my testimony, literally, I, this guy that was uh, <laughs> I don't want to be too like emotional, but yeah, he was a monster. He was a jerk to me. He was a wolf. Um, he would beat me up and stuff like that. But it was funny, and he went from this total jerk to the man I wanted to be. And uh, it was the transformation of Christ that really uh, opened my eyes up to, to why I'm saved today. So I, I look up to my big brother. I mean, I wouldn't. I I, I get to spend eternity with them and a lot of other people because of, of him and he opened my eyes up. And one of the biggest things he opened my eyes up to was the power of storytelling. And I remember as a kid, uh, and, and one of the reasons why I was in Deer Tome, when he would talk to me, usually it would be like, hey, come, come sit in my room. I'm like, oh yeah, sure, can I just you know, hang out with you? And literally I would try and sneak into his room just to see what he was working on because he was always like drawing and doing different things. But uh, man, he was like obsessed with this guy, Walt Disney. And we actually grew up as military brats overseas, so we didn't grow up going to Disneyland or anything like that. But man, he would have all these images and conjure up all these things and he would like sit me down on the bed and he would basically it was like mental exercises on okay close your eyes 
imagine you're going through a tunnel and the light opens up. You're seeing this opening scene of, you know, Marshall, Missouri, you know, Walt Disney's Boyhood Hometown. And he was actually like, like usually storytelling is traditionally an oral uh, tradition or it's written. And he was actually exercising this part of me that was more visual and design. And we didn't even know it. And, and the idea that we would grow up and we'd be able to actually use these dis- different aspects that Walt Disney actually kind of founded, the ideas of telling story, that everything speaks. And, and, and right now our firm uh, is kind of an eclectic group of artists and engineers and uh, different things. Um, we have a huge heart for the kingdom. About two-thirds of our workload is going to be ministry-related. In the last almost 18 years, we've worked with over 450 churches. But it's kind of funny. The, the, uh, the, the one-third of non-church work actually generates over two-thirds to over half of our income. Yeah, that's actually how we make our living. So, you know, we do work with Legoland, Universal, even, uh, even the Walt Disney Company, and that actually kind of funds things. Uh, but, um, like, actually, is it Matt who introduced us? Yeah, yeah it was, I, I mean, really, our ability, there's 300,000 churches in America. We can't possibly serve them all. Our ability to come alongside and just help people tell their story better with this broader vocabulary of design it is good enough for us. We don't need to do everything. Even though we are a fully licensed architectural firm, we actually do full theme fabrication. Like at Universal Studios, we built Hogwarts Express, the big train that everyone takes their picture in front of and stuff. We've done really fun stuff, but then for the local church to be able to do that on a smaller scale, and we, Eastside, uh, Gene Apple, was he was actually one of our first uh, clients ever and who believed in this. We started the firm in October 2001, just after 9-11. And Gene Apple, when he was at... I was with him in Vegas on 9-11, stuck at the airport. Yeah, yeah. And they were literally were one of our first clients before we legitimately started this studio. And uh, Plain Joe, the, the, our name is about that we want to connect your story to the every average Joe, Plain Jane out there. And uh, and Gene Apple believed in us. And when he went from Central then on to, uh, we were able to follow him on to Willow Creek and then back out here to Eastside. So we worked on all the interiors, the kids' ministry space here and stuff like that and everything. And uh, this was a, a huge passion project for us and we had a lot of fun. So I, I won't get into too much of that stuff, but, but really we're humbled and honored to be able to come alongside you guys today. Whether you guys need help you know, fully executing a vision or whether it's just helping cast vision for things and making sure that you know the story is there, um, that really is a core part of who we are and stuff. So I apologize, I have to cut out, and but really um, yeah, I leave you in competent good hands because I'm like the cheap knockoff of my big brother. So yeah, that, that, that really is it. So I'm glad I don't have to follow him because usually it's like a big letdown. It's like, uh, yeah. Anyway, so thank big you guys brother. for having me. So what Pete's not telling you is, um, you know, I had worked at Disney, I spent a, a decade at Disney, kind of gone through uh, the brain damage over there, learned a few things, um, but it was him that, uh, you know, really convinced me that there was uh, some crazy kooks out there in the kingdom that would be remotely interested in, in having a conversation with me about the idea of, of telling stories uh, beyond the pulpit, basically, beyond uh, kind of just the traditional oral sense of storytelling. And, and I've always been a fan of uh, a lot of you probably in the room that do have that gift of God to, to actually uh, tell a story uh, verbally. Uh, I was kind of, one of the reasons I kind of resonated with Walt Disney was because he was also kind of handicapped when it came to uh, verbal storytelling. Um, you know, kind of grew up pretty, pretty poor, impoverished Midwest, uh, never finished high school, really struggled um, even when he was reading scripts, you know, as the Uncle Walt. Uh, uh, and I should always clarify, Walt Disney was a dude. When I'm talking to millennials, they just think it's a corporate brand. They don't even know there's an actual person in the 20th century. 
But uh, anyways, uh, you know, basically he really struggled reading scripts because he couldn't get through it without, you know, reverting back to this Western farm boy girl that most Americans couldn't even understand. And so that, that idea that he had was to be self-aware and humble enough to surround himself with people uh, that may not be traditional storytellers, but basically could help him get his stories out to a crowd larger than he could certainly speak to in a room. And so we ended up assembling this ragtag team of artists, of architects, of artisans that you know could help him tell stories on increasingly bigger and bigger canvases from two-dimensional films to large screen formats to three-dimensional environments with theme parks, ultimately uh, entire cities. And so that's something I really resonated with uh, is taking that handicap and turning it into a positive by assembling teams. Uh, we, we have kind of a motley crew of uh, probably about 75 people in growing that uh, help us kind of partner, come alongside people that I love and respect, again, pastors and, and storytellers. Uh, you know, you guys have that gift like Jesus, like Martin Luther King, that I've always been jealous of. You know, when I accepted Christ, I, uh, you know, pretty radical conversion, wanted to go out there and uh, sell fire insurance, pull people back from the flame of hell, you know, and be a missionary evangelist. I, I was self-aware to realize I couldn't even say a sentence without saying dude at least twice, and I, I couldn't talk right, and I was too chicken to be a missionary, so I just kept drawing, basically. Just kept drawing, I'm going to keep drawing, keep drawing. Um, anyways, what we do is, uh, again, come alongside traditional storytellers, whether it's a leader of a company, a CEO that leads by casting it a story and a vision to his employees, to his market, whether it's a pastor uh, handling the, the meta-narrative of the gospel, you know, a three-part act of creation, brokenness, redemption, helping people understand how God's written them into his story. We come alongside with uh, these tools we call three-dimensional storytelling. So we actually believe in this so much that we've actually arranged our entire team and our our studio around these uh, components. So uh, my brother leads a team of strategic storytellers that focus on the branding, the identity. How do you convey your core DNA, your collective tribal personality? Because we, we believe that every church is different. You may be in our church, but again, you, you might be a, I don't know if you're a middle finger, a pinky, a big toe on the body of Christ, but the, the point is that just like we do have certain things in common with, with maybe other churches that are part of our tribe, our movement, we also believe that God is a creative God. And just like he demands so many beautiful flora and fauna, there is something about that unique situation, uh, that unique uh, context, that soil-specific special sense of place, that special sauce that you're in that is important to celebrate uh, and to not just be a mini-me of, you know, whatever, somebody else's mega church or whatever. Um, digital storytelling is design that people interact with. So we talked about design that walks away with you in terms of brand collateral design that you can interact with. So this is websites, virtual reality, augmented reality. Uh, and then the, the studio that I lead up is called Spatial Storytelling. So um, again, bought this property when it was a, a Boeing Aerospace facility. It had been abandoned. Um, kind of hard to visualize a, a church in a space, but uh, we got back into the story of understanding this is where men helped create, you know, and, and win the space race. You know, we kind of created the, the space navigation system, the land man on the moon, uh, out of this facility. We said, well, the difference now is God's Word is going to be our life, eternal life navigation system. But we were able to play on that kind of mid-century Mad Men, kind of NASA kind of design. And I remember the first sketch we did of that kid's check-in area just outside these doors here. Um, and, you know, the, the idea was, what if we could redeem 
uh, all the crap that was in the building. <laughs> like, you know, we filled up two shipping containers of literal junk and crap and, you know, kind of air ducts and whatever. And we said, you know, hey, we might be able to use this to, to augment some of the two-dimensional graphics and stuff. And, and so that's been kind of fun. But, um, again, all three of these aspects are things that, you know, people are now getting. That there's a spectrum from branding to building that, again, starts well before anyone ever sits down in front of you. You can actually tell them a, a verbal sermon, right? Uh, there's things that someone flying by on a road, a freeway at 50 miles an hour that is not thinking, hey, I should find a church within this Sunday. There's ways of being a better fisherman, putting some bait on the hook, communicating with them as they're just flying by. There's ways of reaching out to, to folks that are just uh, still floating in the ether um, and getting them to actually uh, get your story in the environment. Um, again, as Pete mentioned, tons of uh, story partners that we've been able to collaborate with. Uh, on the corporate side and um, and uh, on the ministry side, um, you know, just a couple of some recent projects I'll share with you. Um, again, you know, Eastside, you know, um, Healing Place, probably. This is up north, uh, Bayside Church. Um, kind of one of our Rockstar buddies, Lincoln Brewster, is kind of the chief creative officer up here. Um, he gets to pick every font, every paint color, but then Ray Johnson's the senior pastor. They've got four different campuses we've been able to work with them on. Um, this is their oldest. It's uh, Granite Bay. It used to look like a prison, actually. It, it was designed by an institutional architect. And usually when people think about church architecture, they think i got to hire a church architect. Well, church architects are in a category called institutional architecture. I don't know about you, but institutions are a place I'm usually trying to get out of, like insane asylums, prisons, hospitals, schools. That's not who I want designing a place that anyone would ever choose to go to. So we kind of did a kind of a design overlay there and uh, created uh, some fun stuff for them. Um, it's called Pariah Kids and kind of an indoor-outdoor California, Hawaiian-style Lanai lobby with, uh, you know, kind of doing kind of uh, storefront facades and cafes and misters. Uh, and then this was the old concrete block kids building and uh, turned that into kind of a little bit of a Baywatch uh, Thrive Kids Rescue uh, operation. Um, so we did a little extreme makeover design intervention on the space. Um, this is their uh, latest, again, we've done a number of campuses for them. Um, this is their Midtown, which is basically Midtown, downtown Sacramento. Uh, so again, abandoned um, uh, Asian fish market. It took us a while to get the smell out of the place, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, by the way, we were having coffee and they were doing a fundraising dinner the next night. And so we, we had that much time to create this image for them. Uh, again, just because they were getting ready to go out and they had nothing to really cast any vision with, and it was kind of fun to be able to help them out. This is Blue Oaks. This is a, a, a retrofitted warehouse, uh, which has become the top gathering place uh, in their city of Roseville. We created an indoor park. Instead of a, a church narthex or a lobby, we said, hey, in this context, in this climate, you know, there's a lot of uh, lonely people. There's a lot of Moms that would just love to just have a place to have a conversation, like an adult conversation. And, you know, you do this magical mix of, of caffeine and kids. It doesn't sound good, but it is good. <laughs> because, you know, uh, I, I remember Lincoln Bridge was super animal about picking the exact right Italian espresso machine because it is the best coffee in town. And then you combo that with this uh, eternal spring garden of Eden indoor uh, park. And it's a, it's a killer combo. That's the 
the cafe, you know, that you look right across the way. And again, this is all really just incubating and nursing a campus that would uh, ultimately go across the street, which is this site. This is uh, called Freedom Point. It's a 100-acre mixed-use development. I'm just showing you some stuff to scare you. Uh, but this is a church really actively taking on the role of uh, being a real estate developer. Um, one of my pastor friends says that real estate development gets a bad rap because the reality is it can be considered one of the most incarnational jobs on the earth. You're literally taking the Garden of Eden and you're transforming it, or you have the ability at least to transform it into a taste of the city of heaven, creating a place of horizontal connection uh, between families uh, and vertical connection between the creator and creation if it's done right. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do here. We actually have a mixed use, uh, I don't even call it a campus, it really is an urban district that everything's connected. We've got um, two hotel sites. Uh, it was the first West Coast Top Golf facility. I don't know if you know Top Golf. They're kind of a retail entertainment uh, rock star darling right now. Uh, but we did the first one in California. That's one anchor tenant. Guess what the other anchor tenant is? It's a church. The church is stealing its spot back, just like European cathedrals and sacred spaces throughout history at the heart of, uh, of a community, walkable district destination. Instead of just being hidden in an office park, or um, hiding out in a school or sleeping on someone's couch, you know? <laughs> Basically, the idea is that they're going to reestablish that centrality of faith that typically sacred spaces, even in non-Christian cultures, you know, whether it's a temple, whether it's, you know, whatever. Uh, and again, in this case, they, they just kind of partnered with the right people to, to make it happen. And at the end of the day, they're going to pretty much get handed a church for free. So it's actually a pretty smoking deal if you play your cards right Otherwise known as stewardship, right? There's two definitions of stewardship. Kind of a theologically poor definition is being as cheap as humanly possible, right? That's not exactly the definition that Jesus talked about, right? Oh, we can't afford design? Why would I pay an architect? I've got Joe Blow, Mr. Brady in my congregation. He's never done a church before, but sure, he'll design for free. Well, you know that little 5% that he saved? He could easily cost you an extra 30 50%. Uh, it could cost you millions more than he saved you in trying to learn what this thing called the church should look. Because it's actually a really complicated mixed-use development project when you have A1 assembly space, food and beverage retail space, commercial, you know, bookstore space, you know, all these different structural types. Um, but again, in this case, partnering with the right people has kind of really served them pretty well. Um, I wanted to share with you some of uh, we, we do um, have kind of uh, two faces. Our uh, ministry face is Plain Joe Studios. Again, connecting the maximum number of average Joes and plain Janes to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and then we also have uh, another uh, brand, which is Storyland uh, Studios, which uh, is our active commercial uh, entertainment theme park uh, development brand. So we're working on a couple of active theme parks right now. Um, but this is kind of another design that, again, was all about telling the story of the people in place. And this came shortly after I worked on the, the renewal of Disney's California properties. Um, where uh, we took uh, a little bit late. I'll tell you about that in a second. But um, again, whether it's Universal Studios converting kind of just a Hollywood backlot into one of LA's first kind of satellite city, kind of walkable urban destinations with uh, Universal City Walk, um, helping Disney uh, advance things to the next level. This is one of our, uh, our directors uh, did a study for uh, kind of bringing augmented reality 
to the existing attraction. So imagine you're on a you know classic 60-year-old ride, the Jungle Cruise, but now you're able to look through lenses and see into the spiritual dimension wow. and see uh, you know whether it's uh, fantastical creatures or demonic activity, uh, just that layer of augmented reality. Or imagine we just uh, opened up an exhibit at the Museum of the Bible uh, called the Holy Land VR Experience. And imagine you're walking in Jerusalem. You can use your iPhone as a periscope to the past. And if whatever you're looking at, it can layer in kind of historical figures or wow. historical structures that were there. So there's ways of adding ins- in education, inspiration, education, whatever you want uh, you know, into it. Um, I wanted to kind of um, just share a couple of, uh, I think it's seven, because that's a Christian holy number, right? Uh, I'm a theological weenie. I get that out from the front end. I've just gotten a chance to hang with some, some amazing kingdom leaders. Um, so I wish I, my wife went to Bible college, I wish I would have had a chance to, to do that. But I was in film school and design school. But um, a couple of just high-level lessons that I had a chance to learn and kind of, they seem relevant, you know, again, from the Magic Kingdom that I've been able to transfer to the Kingdom of Heaven. Number one, blow up the box, right? God's certainly not, you know, short of vision. He's not short of cash. No matter what uh, I've ever looked at, I've understood that people tend to think inside of a certain box, Right. Uh, that box might have an XYZ access, other known as, otherwise known as budget scope schedule. The BS is of the projects. You know, good, fast, and cheap, man. We're going to get her done, son. That's what church design builders call it, you know, in Texas. Uh, you know, and that's one way to approach things. But, again, the idea of uh, blowing up the box is something I learned from Walt. I mean, again, whatever he was, whatever canvas, whatever drawing pad he was given, he kept wanting something bigger. He, I mean, he started doing doodling and graffitiing uh, in World War I. They did comic strips, got bored with that, got into animation, um, introduced the world to, to Mickey through the first sound uh, one of the first sound films, uh, and then was introducing live characters into the animated worlds, uh, and then uh, quickly was moving on to pre-IMAX large screen enhanced THX, you know, style sound formats, um, Fantasound, and then again in the prime of his life, realized that really what I want to do is allow people to step into my stories. I want to create a three-dimensional film. Really, what we call virtual reality is really the first version of tangible, physical virtual reality that you're not just seeing with your eyes, you're, you're experiencing with all five senses, right? You're designing for the, the ears, you're designing for the nose, that cookie smell coming up you know, out of the Main Street Bakery. Uh, you're, again, you're designing for all five senses. And, and again, I was able to join in uh, 1990, and um, we realized that at the time, any of you from Anaheim or Orange County? Um, and, I don't know, none of you is probably old as me, but in 1990, Anaheim, they call it the happiest place on earth, inside the, the berm. But what was happening outside was um, you had these 50s motels that had deteriorated. You had hookers walking the street. You could rent the rooms by the hour uh, for the prostitution, or you could rent them by the month for the homeless families. Um, Walt Disney gave up on it. He called it a third-rate Las Vegas strip. So he pulled up stakes. He bought 45 square miles in Florida because he really was not interested at all in trying to clean this stuff up. Uh, and basically, it got so bad when I started. I mean, we had bullets. We had stray bullets from the neighborhood behind the Disney Hotel go right through the glass of the Disney Hotel. Bullets lodged into the drywall. Welcome to the happiest place in there. You know, barely missed a guest in the head. I mean, you know, again, we kept it out of the press, but the reality is there's no way that Disney was going to be able to continue to pour in like a billion-dollar Star Wars land 
if you have literally the city going to hell in a handbasket around it. And so we had a choice to make. We could either pull up stakes, and we consider doing that, move to Long Beach, do something Disney sees, you know, on the coast, or we could partner with our city and bring, again, the garden back to the city. And that was the big idea of what we tried to do around the resort area. We actually cast this vision of what if we created this Anaheim Resort Garden District that actually gave people a taste of the garden and the city kind of coming together. There's a little bit of the theological uh, premise or backstory there. But again, one of those examples, we took one of the world's largest surface parking lots, big old 100-acre asphalt black tarmac, and we built a national park. And we, we actually created a taste of the golden state of Vine, we call it California Adventure, uh, centered around uh, Grizzly Peak here. Uh, it's, it's, you know, inspired by Yosemite. Uh, and it, actually, it's hard to see this now because the trees have grown up around it, but it looks good back in its day. It has this kind of, uh, but, you know, who gets to kind of tear up a parking lot and put up paradise, you know? <laughs> who gets to put up a, a, tear up a parking lot and put up a national park, you know? And that's kind of what we did, you know, this little three-and-a-half-acre section. We created a mini Yosemite, you know, and we actually screened the outside world with the uh, Grand Californian Hotel. Um, you know, and again, this is gone already, ready for... Uh, Marble land, but uh, again, just giving people a taste of the agricultural heritage, uh, taking people on a journey from the deserts to the mountains to the oceans to the cities to the farms, um, you know, allowed you to soar over California. By the way, we just finished a Wings Over Israel uh, flyover attraction, which is going to be epic, so uh, can't wait for you to ride that. Again, and then working with ministries across the country. This happens to be in Detroit. Where um, you know you can't have things that look too expensive or opulent. That's not kind of kind of fly uh, in this neighborhood at least. So we introduced this. Like this was a abandoned um, uh, racquetball club, like athletic complex. It had been empty for 20 years. And I remember specifically walking through this space uh, for the first time, and it felt like a scene from The Walking Dead. I mean, it was like I'm, I'm pretty cocky usually, but I was like, I don't know, man. This <laughs> is I don't know if I can do much with this, but again, it was kind of fun getting to kind of turn it around. And again, everywhere we go, the design, we don't have one style, right? It should be something that responds. We, we have to be like a cultural anthropologist before we can just be an architect or a designer or a master planner. So just like a good missionary would be, right? So this is uh, uh, near the woodlands in Texas, north of Houston, Spring, Texas. And in this case, we use uh, Texas license plates for shingles because that's cheap and it's cool. Why not? <laughs> right? And so we just collected license plates for a year, turned them backwards, and used that for it. And so it's got kind of a Texas roadhouse slash, uh, you know, hunting lodge kind of feel. The pastor still has his deer hunt bow stand out in the backwoods there. Uh, but again, the, the pond is a fishing pond, and it really is a gathering place. I mean, people are out there fishing, using it as a park, sand volleyball, hanging out seven days a week. Um, and they've got a number of people that have come to the church specifically because, again, the bait we put on the hook there. Um, so, again, just thinking outside of the box a little bit of what church can look, taste, and feel like or whatever it is you're working with. Lesson two, doing your homework. Um, doing the work. A lot of people think that being creative is just sitting there with your arms crossed, just waiting for that lightning bolt of inspiration. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that... Uh, Walt Disney had a left and a right lobe of his brain fully intact, you know. Before he did anything in the Anaheim, he reached out to the Stanford Research Institute, hired a, a mathematician, basically, who told him exactly how many square feet he needed for walkways, how many square feet he needed 
for restaurant space, for retail space, exactly how much money he needed to spend on this, how many acres he needed to buy. He had all the math worked out, all the industrial engineering, all the throughput, the hourly capacity. So, you know, some, you walk into something that feels like this creative, magical, Willy Wonka wonderland, and people are often surprised at how much of a foundation of knowledge that's based on. And just as an example, again, when I started, uh, you know, in Anaheim, we realized, okay, you know, it started out in this beautiful, pristine 1,600 acres of orange groves, and you've just got this little 160-acre, uh, you know, magical little park that a daddy built for his daughters. But again, when I got there, it wasn't that. And so we had to kind of figure out how we could bring that garden back. This is a quick aerial perspective of the phase one of California Adventure, um, filling out the old parking lot. But again, it was all based on math. We, we actually partnered with the city. We, I'm getting a little weeds, but I wanted to you know, understand what I'm talking about here. We actually did the math and said, look, we know that it's a non-starter for you to go to the residents and ask them to subsidize Disney by paying five cents or one penny of, of, of any, letting us use any public tax money to fund any Disney bum. But this, this uh, commercial recreation area here is kind of its own cash cow, and that cash flow has been declining year after year. Uh, because there's not um, a reason that anyone would ever book a convention in this particular destination. And so we basically, long story short, we said, what do we need to do to increase length of stay by a half day from 2.3 days, 2.7 days? And what other lever do we need to do? Well, what if we just raise the hotel bed tax from 11% to 13%? I don't know if any of you are staying in a hotel. I don't know if you know exactly what your hotel bed tax is. You're going to see it in the morning when you check out. But most people are pretty clueless, especially when they're booking their room. So it's pretty painless on the residents. Most tourists don't even notice it. But again, those two little math variables paid for um, $700 million of public infrastructure to clean up the city. And then Disney was able to match that two to one with $1.4 billion of private development, which sounds like a lot, but when we first cast our vision did our Blue Sky stuff, that was gonna be a $3 billion project. And at one point, about a year and a half into it, the whole thing got put on hold and we got our budget cut by over half. And we still had to pull off these, deliver these promises to the city of cleaning up the surrounding 1,100 acres uh, and renewing uh, the park. And so it was, a, it was a tall order. It was, needless to say, it was a pretty good, uh, training camp for me and it was really even though I was going to grad school while I was working on that that was really my true graduate school <laughs> you know in everything from urban planning public private partnerships economic development uh, master planning coordinating designers from across the country and again what it's helped us learn is again working uh, with ministries uh, it really does help to have again a left brain and a right brain to be the creative but also to, to, to have the people that can actually execute the vision. Um, regarding projects, there's kind of a standard operation procedure of church projects gone wild, you know, of a committee that, you know, comes up with a bunch of wish list stuff. They hire a church architect that draws a bunch, bunch of pretty pictures. Yeah, by the time you do the fundraiser and you apply for the loan, 75% of those plans all have to get thrown away because they have nothing to do with any kind of fiscal reality. Um, and so we've learned that there's this unique process where you have to have all the left and right brain people, all the Motley crew, uh, all the wheels spinning throughout the process. You have to have a partnership with designers and contractors on the front end, project managers, and kind of really know where the finish line is all the way through. And we, we have a very strategic 
model that we use to go through um, in, in kind of the proprietary software tool to really figure out um, you know, the different buckets of strategy, of uh, facilities, of financial, so that uh, we know how much you can beg borrow and steal. We know what your growth rate is. We know when you're going to run out of space first in your parking lot, in your worship center, in your kids' space. Uh, we also can make a recommendation based on, again, not uh, making sure that you're having a debt coverage ratio problem or that you're uh, not having the ability to, to staff up to the level that you need to when you're going to double in size you know, in your first year out opening a new facility. So, uh, you know, figuring out should we build on this site, should we do multi-site, should we church plant, you know, all this stuff. Um, just kind of playing with all those assumptions, putting them all into one document, and then really being able to spit out a unified recommendation so that the kid's pastor doesn't think he's building Disney World and the, the worship guy is thinking he's going to go on a YouTube tour, you know, on stage, you know. And, uh, you know, the building committee guys thinking they're just getting this multi-useless gymatorium, get her done, son, kind of black box room for 50 bucks a square foot or whatever, you know. Uh, so uh, not to bore you with that, but again, there's, there is actually some pretty anal, deep diving, navel gazing, you know, church auditing, boring stuff here, you know, that are really exciting for some people in the room, really like horrendous to others in the room, but I mean, I'm talking going deep in spreadsheets and really auditing, okay, how much are we setting aside for, for um, personnel, for, um, you know, for um, facilities, for debt, you know, just kind of seeing where you are in terms of, quote, industry standards, you know, is there kind of a reasonableness test of, you know, we don't want to commit like half of our resources, for example, to debt, you know, and some of this actually isn't that different than personal management, right? Um, you know, if you're spending half your income on mortgage, that's considered not a really sustainable way of doing life. You know, if you're a young adult living in New York or L.A., that's probably standard, but that's still not the ideal, right? Um, there's ways of kind of figuring out, hey, you know, a third, a third, third you know, kind of finding some balance there. Um, and again, we're able to play with those levers uh, so that there's uh, kind of a, the, you know, you're looking at supply, which is the heart line there, the demand the different phases. And again, this is all the kind of stuff we had to do, like, for example, with this church, when they were looking at taking on and buying this massive Boeing aerospace campus that included a high-rise, three buildings. That was way more than they could possibly think that they could, could take on. And we had to kind of do the math And when they decided to sell their old seven-acre site across from Cal State Fullerton to take this on. It's been a, a no-brainer for them because now they're getting campuses handed to them left and right because of the leadership capital and the vision that they've been able to prove out here. Lesson three, be true to your story. And again, I kind of referenced this earlier, uh, the idea of not just kind of, oh, I just want to be, and I don't see this as much anymore, but I want to be just like Rick Warren or whoever, you know, and I know, uh, anyways, it, it, the idea of taking the time to figure out your unique DNA, your story. Um, and again, I, I go back to, to Walt Disney and, um, you know, his, uh, starting point of Marceline, Missouri. This, uh, I've, I've spent the night here, actually, uh, right above the Main Street Cinema. You know, I opened up the closet door, and that was the projection room in <laughs> the old one-screen uh, cinema. And again, this really shaped Walt Disney into the person he was, the sense of community, the sense of connection to the countryside, the sense of scale. Um, there was a story that him and his sister, though, got yanked out of that idyllic childhood they moved to the big city, Kansas City. He was forced to be a newspaper boy, a newsie, basically, out in the snow, kind of almost dying of hypothermia. But there's a, a point where him and his sister would 
would uh, stand in front of the gates of an early amusement park there, an old trolley park called Electric Park, and they would just stand there looking through the pearly gates, you know, and seeing this this park in the distance. And there's no record that he ever actually got to go inside. It only probably cost a nickel or something, but he never actually got to, his dad was kind of a jerk. But <laughs> um, he never actually stepped foot inside. But this image kind of burned something in his head. And I kind of had a similar experience because um, I grew up in, in, well, I was born in Vietnam. I remember bombs going off. Grew up in Germany, kind of military brat. But my dad uh, did end up retiring, going to work for Disney and uh, got me into the park once. And I remember once looking down Main Street and the lights and it just kind of burned this memory in my head as I was growing up in Germany. Just That was my image of America. You know, I didn't really have the most realistic version of, of that was America to me, you know. And so, um, you know, I just, just always wanted to kind of get back there and kind of check that out. I remember making this big pitch to my parents saying, I'm an American, but I've never even lived in America. What's up with that? You know? And uh, so finally got to go back and experience that. Um, but again, a little bit of a parallel there uh, with Walt Disney. And kind of like Walt Disney, I realized he kind of really got bored. Uh, I, I went into film uh, for my you know, undergraduate education at the University of California. Really got bored with the two-dimensional format and wanted to study three-dimensional design. So I started uh, auditing architecture, got my master's degree. And, and just like that, Walt Disney was bored with two-dimensional storytelling, got into three-dimensional theme parks. And then I was deathbed. He was really fixated on uh, the idea of community design. So I'll talk about that later. But again, one thing we learned about storytelling and figuring out your story, it starts with passion, people, and place. We, we have a, uh, our own language on that. We just call it uh, story circles. Uh, and it's this Venn diagram of figuring out your unique character, your who, right? your unique setting, your where, and your unique plot, which is the why. And what we've learned is when we really have those conversations and we understand where that Venn diagram intersects, a big idea comes out of that, right? And that big idea is something that can actually have the power to drive dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe even thousands of design decisions, uh, all keeping them marching towards the same drummer. Uh, and that's what creates um, transformational experiences. I mean, this is the special – this is the reason that – Disney is forecasting next year they're going to have 100 days where they're going to have to close the park at 9 a.m. because of people trying to get into that door to go through Star Wars land. Um, there is a power to this type of uh, consistent internal logic and big ideation that really drives design. Because this isn't available in the real world. It might be available on the other side of eternity, in heaven, when things are made right and God brings order out of the chaos. But in the real world, this isn't the daily way we live, but people are drawn. I mean, wherever Disney's gone in some of these parks, they become the top human magnets on the planet. Disney World, I mean, whether you hate it, love it, whatever, it's the top vacation destination on the planet. It's the top honeymoon vacation. Go figure. I don't know. It's kind of crazy. There are like 3 million annual pass holders in Southern California to Disneyland. Those annual passes are not cheap. You know, just a step foot across that threshold, across that gate, you know, it's a hundred bucks, a hundred. I don't even know. I can't. I can't even afford to bring my kids there. Um, so it's crazy how expensive it is, and what people will pay. Deal with planes, trains, and automobiles to to cross these thresholds. Disneyland Terrace gets a bad rap. The reality is, it's outgrown the Eiffel Tower every every year. It's been open. It's been the top tourist attraction in Europe, outperforming. Notre Dame, these amazing cathedrals that took hundreds of years to build, 
He draws, I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's right. It just is what it is. Um, so, again, there's something to this, this idea of eternally consistent uh, design. And, again, the idea of uh, being true to your story. We have a, a unique process that we call a, a personality process that really is all about distilling your, your core, tribal, unique DNA. Um, you know, we walk, we walk folks through how your character creates value, how your relationships transfer value how your identity embodies that value and how uh, your voice expresses that value. And then we turn this, it's not just a wordsmithing exercise. We don't end the day with a big, you know, uh, statement that you put on a wall. I mean, this is really done to create a visual language that really creates a filter for every piece of print collateral you ever put out, every sign you ever have, every environment that you ever create. Uh, and it allows people to literally step into your story. And again, going through the, the homework of when we talk about your character, really going through the demographics, the psychographics. Uh, this is a community that actually happens to be the next town uh, just east of here. It's a town called Corona. Um, it's a, a church called Crossroads that Judd Wilhite actually came out of. He's out in Central Vegas. Um, again, this is kind of an example of that, that spatial storytelling. We, we looked up the word Corona in the dictionary, and rather than being Spanish for beer or crown, it was a concentric circle of light surrounding a luminous body. It's pretty cool. And so we designed the whole campus around the idea of a circle of light. The central spine became candle walk, and the kids' area was little sparks, and um, you know, a lot of fun. And, and again, we created the first postmodern piazza. What you're looking at is won all kinds of architectural awards. It was the cheapest uh, church building in America in that decade in terms of cost per seat. Uh, it was a 3,200 seat auditorium that was done for like nine and a half million dollars. Pre-engineered metal butler building uh, that won all kinds of architectural awards. I walked engineers in and they had no idea what kind of structure it is. And the, the key is we just treated the building like a Hollywood soundstage. It's just a a black box, but we were able to do some layering, and not much, but we did a front porch, we did a, uh, the tallest point in the city is this, um, it's basically a cell tower, but it's got polycarbonate LED cladding with a cold cathode lit cross that you can see from two different freeways, um, and again, the, the metaphor though is that you're getting this city on a hill, the biblical city on a hill that uh, in, in Southern California, where we have this Mediterranean climate that only 3% of the world shares, and that Jesus was smart enough to choose for his earthly ministry, we want to take advantage of that. Because guess what? We can do outdoor space here for 10 bucks a square foot versus that Willow Creek wannabe atrium that feels like every mall of Generica in the world or airport that is 150 bucks a square foot uh, at, at the least the low end. Um, but we can create some uh, amazing space here. So we've got interactive water fountains, waterfalls, kids could climb up. Um, you know, it's a little trinity fountain here. Um, so again, every, every time it always starts with a blue sky process where we uh, come in with our team, coming in as missionaries and cultural anthropologists, and we start with a, a blue sky to generate that big idea. And it really starts with, uh, again, stopping, uh, closing our mouths, opening our ears, and figuring out the story that God is writing with you and through you. Uh, lesson four, surround yourselves with better storytellers. I referenced this earlier uh, with Walt Disney, um, you know, being aware enough that, uh, believe it or not, in the earliest days of Mickey Mouse, 
Walt was able to find a buddy, this guy named of Iwerks, that could just draw better and faster than he could because he realized that, that was not the best stewardship of his time. I mean, he had trained a little bit as an artist, but he was just not that great, and he knew that. And so he was able from the earliest days to hire people uh, and pay them less than himself, even than he paid himself. Uh, and sometimes he didn't pay himself, but basically hired people he could draw better. Uh, Steve Jobs is a great example. You think Steve Jobs could outcode anybody? No. <laughs> you think he could outdesign or outdraw? Anybody, you know, just, you know, with his hands and a pencil, no. But, you know, he had that ability to kind of figure out people that could augment his vision and passion. Uh, I love this. The, the, one of the uh, full-size replicas of this is on uh, display at the Disney Hotel. This is what we call the Magna Carta of Walt Disney Imagineering. Uh, and this was when Walt Disney found out on Friday that there was a meeting scheduled, that his brother scheduled Monday in New York, for guys that could just maybe write this check for this 20-year dream he had been incubating and nursing uh, for this, again, this magical little park that that he could, that daddy could make some memories with his daughters, you know, called Disneyland. Um, and basically, he kind of got caught with a lot of stuff in his head, but not, not enough of it, you know, that he kind of uh, put on paper. And so he hijacked uh, an artist that used to work for him, didn't currently work for him, worked for 20th Century Fox named Herb Ryman, basically kidnapped him, sat him in, locked him in a sound stage, and basically did a brain dump for 72 hours, and they just puked it out and came up with this image that uh, is aerial perspective rendering that completely sold the bankers on writing uh, the $10 million check uh, for Disneyland. And again, it's the same process we used. That was the first blue sky process. We did the same thing when we created California Venture. We said, look, you know, people are just doing a day at Disneyland. They're not basing their vacation there. They're going down to San Diego to go to SeaWorld or the zoo. They're going up to the Bay Area. They're going to the beach. Um, they're going to Six Flags, you know, whatever. How can we cut them off with a fast, basically? Um, you know, if they want, you know, rides like Magic Six Flags, Magic Mountain, or the, the coast, we'll create Paradise Pier. Well, you know, if they want uh, uh, Knott's Berry Farm American History, we'll create uh, Paradise Pier, uh, or I'm sorry, um, the Golden State area and the kind of the mining heritage. If they want to go to University Studios, we'll create Hollywood Land. So the big idea of giving people a taste of this Golden State that kind of always existed but doesn't really exist at all, you know, this, this image, this feeling that you have when it's the dead of winter and someone's flipping the channel watching Tournament of Roses or Baywatch or, you know, and they have the, the choice to either, I hate those people in California, or, the, or man, I wish I had a piece of that. Yeah, I want to I go there. Um, and so that was kind of the idea. And then tying it back into Walt's personal story of, of showing up in 1923, uh, pretty much homeless, moving into his uncle's garage and finding this fertile soil that allowed him to put down there. Same thing that a lot of people over a lot of years have done is uh, come out west until they run out of land and find that fertile soil to start things like the Silicon Valley uh, and that industry or uh, you know the, the Hollywood film industry, you name it. Um, and again, this was a first pass uh, conceptual master plan for the phase one, which to be honest with you, I'm going to tell you a dirty little secret here. We knew that this was a pretty raw start. I mean, this was literally bare bones. We, we nicknamed it Six Flags Over Disneyland because we were ordering rides out of catalogs. And we, we didn't have the opportunity to, to build an immersive berm. We didn't have the choice to do these big epic, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, like 20 minute fully immersive rides. And we were literally ordering roller coasters out of a catalog and, and just 
throwing up graphics. But again, there was a heart and a soul and also flexibility in that big idea that we knew we could layer in that whatever intellectual properties and studio properties, we didn't know we'd buy Pixar or Star Wars, Lucasfilm or Marvel, but all that would fit into uh, a Hollywood land. You know, uh, whatever we we're going to do about the oceans and the seas, whether it's Little Mermaid or Finding Nemo, would fit into this Paradise Pier, uh, now Pixar Pier area. Uh, and so again, it's about building that flexibility in, uh, to the big idea. And again, that, that fertile soil has spread beyond just Disney-owned property now to things like Garden Walk. Just uh, had a reunion show with some buddies at the House of Blues, which just opened up at Garden Walk. So they've kind of taken that big idea that we, we brought in of bringing the garden back to the city, and they've taken it and run with it. Now Garden Walk's the restaurant row, kind of top dining destination. They're building a new four-star hotel on the back side of it that really should turn it around. This is kind of my pride and joy. Um, you know, my dad, when we worked at Disney, told me about kids that would try to sneak over the boat on parts of the Caribbean and try to spend the night. And I remember thinking, dude, you shouldn't have told me that because that was an awesome idea. I can't wait to try that. Uh, and so I was fixated on letting people spend the night, fall asleep, go into REM sleep, wake up, and still be in that immersive reality of uh, being in the magic. And so we actually created a hotel in the new park. They're, the wings are like fingers that are shoved into the park. So when you walk out your room, you can go on Grizzly River Run, get soaked under a waterfall, walk back in, jump in the hot tub with your clothes on, go right up the elevator, change, go back out for more. I mean, it's just a unique experience. You're not dealing with all the, you know, the houses of a shuttle bus and parking and that. And, uh, you know, it's basically Westworld, but it's uh, hopefully funner. Uh, <laughs> so, this is, uh, again, the, the process of kind of storyboarding and kind of getting to the point where you actually end up with master plans and then architecture. This is just an example. I just wanted to pick a random uh, little church. This is uh, in the metropolis of Wenatchee, Washington. Uh, you know, again, just a kind of fairly random early 70s uh, church. And this was the main entrance to their family ministries area. Uh, and it was kind of hard because most families would never guess that that's where I was supposed to go with my kids down in this basement, down these stairs, and just doing a quick overlay uh, in our blue sky effort, we were able to kind of create the brand for the kids, uh, for the church, and kind of help them know where their path and their journey starts. And again, that, that metaphor of creating this discipleship journey uh, that starts here is something that then is carried through, not just through the kids' areas, but through the, the entire area. So this is what you find when you walk in those doors, or what you used to see, and this is kind of what you see now, again, with kind of found objects, rolling, flexible check-in stations, just kind of putting out a list saying, hey, does anybody have an old backpack, an old sleeping bag uh, that we can use uh, in, in casting vision? Lesson five. Um, if anyone's ever worked with an architect, you've probably heard the mantra, form follows function. Um, I like to say form follows fiction, spaces that tell stories. Throughout thousands of years, anything that was designed to last uh, conveyed meaning, told stories. So you think about cathedrals, you know, stained glass windows. That was the technology, the PowerPoint of the day. And um, again, that ability of space to tell stories and to help storytellers uh, communicate is, has always been key. And that's been part. And again, something that Walt Disney brought because he wasn't very literate. He wasn't much of a writer. He's very visual. He basically bailed on the whole Hollywood process of of writing written film treatments and scripts, and he went right to the storyboard process, uh, which we've been able to introduce to the uh, spatial storytelling architectural world of uh, using very simple structures and warehouse structures and creating flexible spaces 
uh, and then storyboarding experience. This is the, the storyboard for probably still the best ride at Disneyland until Star Wars lands open. Uh, this is the Indiana Jones ride. And again, it's not an architectural programming spatial adjacency analysis process. It's a process of saying, well, what would it be like to put you in Indy's Jeep, you know, and throw your butt into the Temple of Doom and try to make that alive, you know? And how do you make that happen? And using the full toolbox that we have at Disney, you know, throwing flamage at you, throwing boulders at you, you know, and, and making you believe it, you know? And, and that's uh, what you have when you're at Disney. You have $100 million and you have a 100,000 square foot soundstage and you can kind of go to town. Well, most of our clients don't have $1,000 a square foot. Uh, you know, with East Side here, it was more like $10 a square foot. $15 square foot. So, again, that ability to scale it down, but most people, even though we're right next door to Disney here, would walk into this environment and say, oh, this is just a piece of jar. This seems like, I can't believe they only spent one one hundredth what Disney would spend on this space. You know, most kids come and like, yeah, this is pretty fun. Yeah, we, we chose potentially to not do anything inside the rooms thematically. We just wanted to give them flexibility to change it up and do whatever they want to do week in, week out. But again, that idea of having that premise story is one that I actually learned. This is kind of something I kind of miss. Uh, is my first project at Disney. This was just a conversion of an old Olympic uh, pool that was getting demoed to create the AMC Cineplex at downtown Disney, which is also already shut down. But, uh, you know, we created Neverland Lagoon, basically. We, we brought in an old parade float. Again, we had no money. The amount of money we had was $3 million to just replace one pool with another rectangular pool. But instead, we said, we got to have a story. Kids, we have to bring kids somewhere. So we said, kids want to go to Neverland. So we found an old parade float in the warehouse. Um, did a bunch of keep off signs <laughs> that were thematically correct, but you know, it became this journey through the Misty Mountains, through the Lost Boys Tree House, down Crocodile Creek, um, into the Mermaid Lagoon, uh, in Platypine. And this is kind of an example of uh, a children's ministry that is um, all about building up that anticipation before they even get into the room. This is a church in Arizona, so we created this whole archaeological dig site where you get to dig into God's Word, and then before you go into the main building, it's like you're Stepping into this rotunda temple doing that has environmental projections, has the word of God coming to life. But you're climbing through archaeological scaffolding and you know digging up the whatever the you know as you go through the walls, it's like the caves of Qumran, pulling out the papyrus. But it's all about creating that sense of anticipation. Once you go into the rooms, it's pretty much black boxes and flexibility. But uh, it also is the top. Uh, playground in the city. I mean, it's just a regional attraction that uh, is a place to hang. Uh, again, this is an old Baptist church in Texas, just taking existing space and establishing kind of the space camp uh, trailhead theme. This is an old, uh, old. This is a, a church in the Rust Belt of America, Beloit, Wisconsin. You know, state line between Wisconsin and Illinois. Again, this church does not have a lot of money. In their community does not have a lot of money. Their malls shut down. When I asked everyone, where's our favorite place to hang out? Everyone pretty much unanimously said Walmart. That's a, that's a high watermark there. <laughs> Cultural experience here. They use their lobby as a community food bank. You know, for all the people that have lost their jobs, you know, all the industrial jobs that got shipped off to China. Um, you know, it's tough. So, I mean, again, you couldn't spend money. They're out of space on kids' space, so we had to do a space. It's in a preacher metal warehouse, but we left the floor concrete. We left the ceilings open, but through caution tape, just door wraps, you know, it's this kids' work uh, environment where they're basically 
producing God's little units of power and light, shipping them off around the world. And the batteries, these light bulbs uh, that are getting shipped off around the world. And nothing expensive or elaborate, but uh, you know, the, the fruit of the spirit being some of the output. And you know, those little batteries on top, those are construction debris. Those are just. Uh, barrels that were left over from the construction site. And again, their cafes, corrugated metals, and raw materials um, that convey that theme of uh, restoration. And, um, you know, this metaphor of this power plant that men built to be a source of power and light for the community now is this power and light district that God's using to, to be a source of power and light in their community. So nothing opulent, nothing expensive. Uh, spending the same amount of money they probably would have spent uh, doing, you know, just generic church nice stuff, you know. Um, a couple of images here, uh, most of which are at Mariners, which is uh, kind of my home church. The little chapel on the right I call Lori's Chapel because uh, I got to design it and they got to get married in it, which worked out pretty nicely uh, for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically this, the idea of using the hardscape to be the metaphor of walking. I, we just used uh, stay in concrete. Um, and it's this metaphor of walking with Jesus on the surface of the water in faith. You know, it's like uh, Jesus and Peter, uh, this river creek here of, um, you know, you see the cross, at the base of the cross, the source fountain. It, the metaphor is that you're basically, this, this little creek runs into a hillside amphitheater down the middle to a baptismal. So the metaphor of being baptized in the blood of Christ and being following the grace uh, along that river of grace uh, anywhere on the campus is really powerful. Uh, rounding towards the end here, lesson six, we are wired by our creator for community. I actually learned this, again, by a real, from a real estate developer who is um, really trying to get away from just single-family tract homes. And he said, look, we are made as a herd species. Some of us have wandered off, you know, like little lost sheep, trying to find our own private Idaho, these little, you know, buy as much space as we can afford between us and the next human family. But throughout history, humanity has wanted to live in community. There's something in our wiring. Uh, and again, that's something that Walt was very passionate about, was through his life, trying to take all the lessons he had learned in story, in, um, in technology, uh, and, um, and actually use that to give people a sense of this, this hometown, this sense of Mayberry that he had a chance to experience. Um, when people are pulled, would you rather live in a big city like Manhattan, or would you rather live in a farm? given the choice, or a suburb, everyone chooses a small town. Uh, that idea, that's heaven on earth. That's what people have a taste for. And so on his deathbed, he was making plans for this city on a hill that he called Epcot. I call it Waltopia. He called it Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And so he had, he had got pretty serious about buying 45 square miles, and he actually filmed a little black and white um, 17-minute sales pitch. I call it a Nehemiah kind of urban sermon, basically. It was never even shown until after he died. But just on the strength of this, uh, this little sermonette, uh, the state of Florida gave his company the right to develop two incorporated cities on 45 square miles. They could write their own building codes, write their own zoning codes, tax themselves, they had tongues for a nuclear power plant, airport of the future, you name it. And again, talk about being a Nehemiah-level visionary uh, and being passionate about community. And again, uh, and by the way, remember I said he wasn't a great artist? This is his master plan for business. He's really into the napkin sketches. Uh, but again, this is what uh, the area around uh, Disneyland looked like, uh, you know, uh, 
right around the time that Walt Disney died, uh, and it's not what it looks like now. Again, it's uh, this was kind of the vision document that we put out to say, what if we gave people a taste of Sunset Drive, you know, Beverly Hills, you know, the palm trees, the birds of paradise, and just letting you know you're not in Kansas anymore, you know, the second you enter into the district. Um, and again, really getting into, I, I don't want to get in the weeds here, but really um, being pretty futuristic, we built the world's largest parking garage with direct freeway on-ramps, off-ramps that are reversible right on the interstate uh, five freeway. They're actually expanding that now and make it even larger. And the crazy thing was, this was across a single loaded residential street from one-story branch home. So talk about an entitlement land use approval nightmare. You know, we basically had to build the hanging gardens of Babylon across the street from these people's houses. Um, but again, casting that vision uh, for bringing Disney outside of the berm of the theme parks into the real world. So this is downtown, a proposal for downtown Burbank. Um, that little lake there is actually the roof of a parking structure. So you would have this Burbank ocean that looked like an infinity pool that would have a waterfall over the edge of the... So again, after Walt, some of this stuff happened. This was uh, downtown Disney, which I, I designed to give people a taste of the... Uh, you know, kind of a little bit of a taste of a walk through California. So you go from kind of this Art Deco, Wiltern, uh, L.A. district to an arts and crafts district. But again, at the time, there was no there there in suburban sprawl Orange County. Now we have all these uh, historic cities coming back alive, Old Town Orange, downtown Anaheim. If you haven't been to Anaheim Tacking House, you have to get your butt over there at some point uh, while you're here. But again, all these places that are, again, rediscovering the, the unique story of their communities, the agricultural backstory. Uh, in the farming communities, uh, but that wasn't the case when we did this, so it's been successful as a, a gathering place. Again, in Florida, uh, the Walt Disney Company ended up building the Town of Celebration, kind of a little bit of a Truman Show uh, in reality, but then the more successful project is actually outside of Disneyland Paris, where they're building a, a massive 5,000-acre city called uh, Val de Europe. Uh, and this is like an example just outside of the, the mall of this great European kind of streetscape uh, that, uh, you know, some of the greatest urban planners and developers, uh, you know, actually credited Walt Disney with being the best urban visionary and urban designer. Uh, James Rouse, uh, uh, who was a believer in a natural real estate developer, uh, the Rouse Company is still a pretty big entity and mall owner. He called Walt Disney kind of the greatest urban designer of the century. And again, what a lot of us are doing now is actually partnering together and figuring out how we can take the suburban sprawl of our communities that we all live in, right? Uh, this kind of placeless strip mall kind of throwaway, you know, arterial culture that really isn't designed. It's really dictated by parking requirements and setbacks and zoning codes. Nobody actually wants it to look like that. It's just kind of people that are asleep at the wheel have written these regulations. And they've done things like forgotten about churches. Like there's no such thing as a church zone. You can just about do anything other kind of development, but churches have to beg for the forgiveness to exist through an onerous process called the condition use permit, which in California is a nightmare, right, Mark? <laughs> and so, again, what we've done is we figured out how can we go in and take these uh, abandoned strip malls like John Siebling owns and, and with Light Church in Memphis, and how can we actually turn those into urban districts and, and uh, design around people instead of just cars? And, and again, nowadays with uh, you know, autonomous vehicles around the corner, that's a, you know, the whole idea of you know, suburban parking lot requirements dictating how much land churches need to buy. It's, it's, a, it's just a new day. This is a master plan I did with Rick Warren on a picnic table uh, for Saddleback to turn their 100-acre campus instead of just being this mega church campus that uh, is great if you're a member, but otherwise it 
feels kind of weird when you're driving by if you're not part of the Christian Country Club megachurch model. And so this is a, a concept to turn it into the downtown of Lake Forest, the city that it's in. That really is just a collection of real estate products that's never really had it there. There's never had a historic Main Street. So this kind of lines the parking lot with a retail dining entertainment. Main Street has their new sanctuary as the anchor tenant. Just like where the castle would be at the end of Main Street, that's where their new uh, worship center becomes a fulcrum between that and the current pedestrian spine. Okay, I'm going to leave you number seven. Surprise, surprise. It's about story. <laughs> the power of story. Um, and I'll try to go fast here, but um, a buddy of mine is a creative director for this little land called Cars Land. Um, and he's a believer. And he pointed out to me when we walked in that there's a sign that says population um, seven or something scratched out and someone writes eight. And the idea is that that's Lightning McQueen, a.k.a. Doc Hollywood, that pulls into town. And he is the, he's the catalyst for transformation and change. And every night they celebrate, I don't know if anybody remembers the movie, but there was a point where he finally re-asphalted the street and I got all the other characters to come out and do a little night cruise. And there's a moment every night, it's going to happen in just a few minutes here, uh, at sunset, where all the neon lights come on one by one. They play the exact same song in the movie, and everyone gets goosebumps. And it's, it really, for him, it was a parallel of that moment of where God redeems, creates that renewed earth, the new earth, new heaven. And it was just a powerful idea that, um, you know, there's some things that we can do that, you know, again, in the name of good stewardship, in design, we can actually reflect the image of a, a God that introduced himself as an artist when he said in the beginning he created, you know, uh, and we can we can bear that image, we can reflect that creativity and create something of, of beauty and excellence and intentionality. Um, and again, here's just an example though that is that businesses understand. Every generation has cultural values that we're willing to put our money behind and I'm going to talk about a, a cup of coffee for a quick second here. Back in the barter trade economy, a handful of beans, not worth much, right? Farmer taking it to market, trying to get market value for the beans. If you had enough coffee beans to make one cup of coffee, enough unprocessed, unroasted beans to make one cup of coffee, not even worth a penny in today's world, okay? And we've done this in Seattle with Starbucks and Zeta. You don't get a penny for you know, a cup of beans. Fast forward, industrial revolution, you've done a lot with those beans. Now you've cleaned them up, refined them, roasted them, created globally recognized brands, consistency, walk into any back alley, 7-Eleven in Guangzhou, China. If you see that Folgers, you know it's going to be the amount that it is. It's going to taste a certain way. Whether you like it or not, that's not what fuels McDonald's. They're not the fine dining cuisine, but they've got a lot of unpredictability that they've kicked to the curb. It's very uh, predictable. And again, now you can get that Folgers cup of coffee for 10 cents, okay? Fast forward a few more years, and that was the industrial economy, industrial revolution. Now all those industrial jobs are shipped off to China. Now we have a service information-based economy where people at the high end can get techie jobs or cultural creative jobs and communication, branding, film, architecture. But then you have a lot of people at the low end that are just scraping by for service industry jobs, you know, at 7-Eleven, for example. Now you go to 7-Eleven, Get your Slurpee or your super big gulp of coffee. Uh, I don't know how much it costs. I know it's going to end in nine cents. So 79 cents, 89 cents, 99 cents. Uh, then you fast forward into the 90s or so, and 
you enter the what uh, economists call the experience economy, and Starbucks really tapped into this, especially their third place concept of, hey, you're going to step in. It's not just about getting a cup of coffee anymore, right? We're creating community. We're giving you that third place, that cheers bar where we not just know your name, but your order. You know, it's this place you can linger, you can loiter. And fast forward into the new millennium here, and what economists are saying is what people will pay for, what they'll give their lives for, is transformation. You give someone a chance to change their life, change the world, and they will not only pick that product, they will commit, they'll go deep. Uh, and again, this all leads to creating epic stories, and that's what epic stories do is create change, create transformation. So we've shifted away from just building these black box, multi-useless gymnatoriums, you know, that you can just sit there as a consumer, just passively consume this great rock and roll show, pit Jesus, walk out without really connecting, moving away from that informational passive, you know, kind of Neo in the Matrix, like, oh, I was fed, you know, by my feeding tube, you know, <laughs> people want to be part of uh, experiential, participatory, immersive, connected community, people want to join a tribe on a journey, on an adventure, and what does that look like, and it looks different than used to look. And I'm going to just really try to drill this down and make it simple for you. This is a modern Catholic cathedral. I'd love to say I designed this. I didn't. Uh, this is what most architects think that uh, contemporary church architecture look like because their paradigm is that they're building the temple. There are timeless rules of liturgical design to make you psychologically feel like you're stepping onto sacred space. We can manipulate your body, mind, spirit, I guess, into somehow feeling like you're ascending upstairs around, that you're lowering your head and your eyes are raising because of the, the natural light flowing through. It's bad theology, right? I don't know. Jesus wasn't that impressed with the temple, right? <laughs> His apostles were all impressed by it. He, he said, what's the temple? We're the temple, right? It's not grace and order, right? Um, but spaces either can facilitate community and connection where they can get in the way. To me, that's, that's, that's what good design does. It's either re, it joins Christ in that work of, of restoring that cr broken cross-shaped shalom, that cross-shaped connection, vertical connection, creator, creation, horizontal connection with each other. Great spaces facilitate that connection. Bad design breaks that connection and gets in the way. You think about the, the, the projects, the housing projects, you know, where moms were up here, Kids are down here in this wasteland selling drugs, whatever. And, you know, that, that separates people. Uh, it separates people from each other. Suburbia, you know, where your house is over here, you have to go down the cul-de-sac, spend a quart of gas to buy a quart of milk. You know, nobody really knows each other. You pull in your three-car garage through the kitchen door. You don't really, uh, you know, most people, they say love your neighbor, but if you had to write on a card, could you actually list the human beings that live on the house in front of you, behind you, to the left and the right of you? I don't know if I could, you know. Uh, I definitely don't know their pets' names, but again, <laughs> historically, the cross was at the heart of community. This is the Cathedral of Milan. It's got that cross-shaped transept. They took the old Roman shopping mall, the Basilica, uh, and they added the transept. And at the foot of the cross is where the community gathered. And it's surrounded by this chaos and madness, but where we are in that city, you can find your way to the foot of the cross. And it's just restoring that centrality of space. And, and for us, the better metaphor, rather than trying to recreate that temple on a hill that people feel like they have to ascend to and live up to and, and kind of check off the list once a week, I feel like, you know, somebody else got that job to design that cathedral or that temple of today. I feel like um, I'm proud that God just... 
I'm proud and humble that God just gave me a shovel and just said, big boy. Because <laughs> for me, what he wants us to do is dig these postmodern versions of Jacob's well, where real water is being provided, but also living water. Where that Samaritan woman of today, she wasn't getting up, looking at websites, trying to find church, or find, trying to find her way to Israel. I mean, she's in Samaria, the temple and God's presence supposedly is in Jerusalem. There were too many cultural, geographic, physical, moral barriers for her to get to the temple. And even if she did somehow get to the temple mount, do you think she would have got past the court of Gentiles? She wouldn't have made it to the holy place. And she definitely would have been stoned before she got to the most holy place of the actual presence of God. But God didn't let any of that stop her from busting through space and time, trying to connect with her where she was at, just trying to get a drink. Right? And Jacob's well. And so that idea that we can create today's versions of Jacob's well. This is a, an actual uh, well court in San Gimignano, Italy. Uh, this is my uh, pre-Christian secular version of a postmodern well, which is the outdoor Uva bar over downtown Disney. So non-redemptive <laughs> well. But again, what we can do is create these, these spaces where people do gather seven days a week. This is one of these locations. This is Restoration Roasters down the street from our studio. Uh, we took an old abandoned church nursery and we created a, a place, uh, again, telling the story of reclaimed lives, reclaimed materials. Um, it's staffed by residents of our local homeless shelter or volunteers. Uh, every drink represents a cup of compassion, a cup of transformation. There's not one person that walks in here that doesn't get the story, that doesn't get that God changes lives, that uh, God can transform people and place. Um, it's, it's not this abstract thing you have to read on a placard, you know, in an art museum. It's in your face. It's real. And people love that because it's not, I'm just sitting in my Christian lattes on Sunday morning. This is transformation, and it's also the best coffee in the region. And so I'm not reading it. So, again, quick uh, example locally. This is a Surf City uh, First Christian Church, Huntington Beach. Typical A-frame, nasty 70s church. Actually facing the main street on the way to the pier. It looked closed because it was. This is the front of the building. The back of the building is, is red brick block wall, no doors, and people thought it was closed for a lot of years. This is the after shop where we resorted back to the the roots of the hundred year old church and this Victorian beach chapel, uh, and you know demoed some dock out buildings and put up uh, a student ministry space and created this surf city uh, gathering space. This is a student center for my home church at Mariners, um, indoor outdoor. Uh, kind of open air space. Um, this is uh, Cambodian. Uh, the big idea of this project was from the killing fields to the fields of harvest. And, and again, in this case, um, our client, uh, his entire family was wiped out by the Khmer Rouge. Um, and again, he had to baptize and lead to Christ the guy that ran the killing machine here um, and actually tell him he forgive him and train him up as a pastor, if you can believe that. Crazy. Um, Again, stories of hope and transformation. Um, we built entire villages for victims of child sex trafficking, my refuge house in Cebu, Philippines, uh, and uh, you know, using that local flavor. Again, this is uh, Lori's Chapel of Love. Uh, you know, again, just to say there, there's room for sacred space. Um, and uh, if you want more of these stories, uh, I write for Outreach Magazine. Uh, I've got a couple different things. I do have copies of my book if anybody's interested. They're just five bucks. I've got a new book uh, coming out uh, in about a week or so. 
Uh, we were aiming for uh, the art conference here, but we're just doing some final edits. If you give me a card or an email, be happy to get you a free download uh, of that. And uh, otherwise, I'm pretty sure I'm running late. Uh, <laughs> really appreciate you guys for hanging in there. Happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much.